Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Hey there, Tulare Community Church. If this is your first time viewing, my name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here at TCC. And today we are starting a new four-week sermon series that we've entitled Heart of Worship. Now, naturally, when we think of worship, music and song is rightfully going to come to mind. But if you've grown up in the church, if you've been walking with Christ for some time, I'm sure you're already aware that worship is much more than that. Worship is every way that we honor and glorify God. And so we certainly honor and glorify God with our voices and our songs and the posture of our bodies, proclaiming and professing who he is in a chorus of praise. But worship is definitely not limited to 20 minutes on a Sunday or the few moments you might listen to Christian radio and hum along. No, worship is honoring and glorifying God in all that we do in every single facet of our life. We worship God in our faithfulness. We worship God in our obedience. We worship God in our service. We worship God in our gratitude. We worship God in our excellence. We worship God by our very lives. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at how we worship God in our lives through our work, through our gifts, through our finances, and even through our recreation, relaxation. We need to see our lives as worship. You know, at our staff meetings or on a Sunday, I'll hear people say, the worship was really good. What do we mean by that? Does that mean I I like the song selection, or the singers did such a good job, or the musicians were excellent, or the sound was mixed just right? You know, Jesus, quoting from Isaiah, says these words, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. They worship me in vain. He's not talking about the song selection or the harmonies of the singers or the talent of the musicians or the quality of the mix. Oh, we strive for excellence and we are very grateful for our worship team and our worship leaders that use their gifts that God has given them for our good. But whether or not the worship is good depends entirely on whether or not God is glorified or magnified. And the heart then is the only instrument that matters in worship. And your heart for God is not confined or relegated to a few minutes on a Sunday. So how is your worship? Is it good? When you go to bed at night on a weekday, do you ever think, oh, the worship was so good today? We want to broaden our understanding of worship in this series and see how our worship or lack thereof is a testament to the condition of our heart and our spiritual well-being. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. There is no greater statement in Judaism than the Shema, that, that first verse, that statement, that affirmation of God's singularity, that the Lord is one. And in Christianity, Jesus calls the very next verse the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, with the totality of ourselves. Now, for a lot of people in our culture, they see God's command to love him as incredibly distasteful, like it's an act of vanity or insecurity on the part of God, that God demands, indeed commands, to be loved. If God is so great... Why does he demand our worship? If God is so great, why does he command our love? Why should he care? Isn't he so much above us? Isn't he so much beyond us? Why should he care? 
Well, there's several problems with that reasoning, but the one I want to focus on today is that that line of thought has a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of God. What the scriptures teach us is that God is the embodiment of goodness. He is holy. He is righteous. He is the incarnate manifestation of all truth and beauty. To love God is a command because it is a moral imperative to love righteousness, to love goodness, to love justice, to love truth. To say I love goodness or I love justice, but I don't love God is a contradiction in terms. God is the very standard of morality. There is no other. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. Those are linked statements. The nature of God necessitates the love of God. The command to love God is a profound call of moral clarity. And all, all of the evil, all of the wickedness, all of the lust, all of the greed, all of the corruption, all of the perversion of the human heart comes down to an insufficient love of God. You ever notice in reading through scripture just how much of it is focused on idolatry? From the time that God sets apart a people for himself and establishes his law declaring, you shall not have other gods, the entire history of his people can be summarized as a history of their struggle with idolatry. God gives them the law as he leads them on their way to the promised land. They stumble with the golden calf and they stumble with the Moabite women worshiping their gods. Then they enter the promised land in Joshua. They conquer the people and Joshua implores them with this pronouncement. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. And then we enter into the time of judges, which is summed up well this way. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways." So they'd serve and worship God, but then they'd fall to idolatry. They'd become totally corrupt. God would judge them. They would repent and worship God. God would deliver them, and then they'd fall to idolatry, rinse and repeat. And then we move from the judges into the time of kings, and it follows a similar pattern to that of the time of judges. First, we have Saul. Saul disobeys God, and Samuel, the prophet, says to him, for rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So God establishes David as king over Saul, and David is said to be a man after God's own heart. And you see that very clearly in the writings of David in the Psalms. Now, David is a sinner, too. He sins grievously. We're talking about murder and adultery. But even in that, you see a heart dedicated to God. He writes this, Against you, speaking to God, against you, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now that statement is not to say that he didn't do harm to other people. He certainly did. But it's a statement on the primacy of sin as an affront to God. And I want to look at that more in a bit, but next we have King Solomon, David's son. It starts off well, but he goes wayward in idolatry, and it says this, 
the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. So the kingdom is torn in two over idolatry. And then there's the line of kings in both kingdoms. There's good kings and bad kings, but the principal difference between a good king and a bad king is whether the king worships the true God or false God. Here's the pattern. Here's how it usually is characterized. Here's a bad king. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. All right, now a good king. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. Back to a bad king. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. And on and on it goes. Bad kings worship idols. Good kings smash the idols. Bad kings erect new idols. And all the while, the prophets are screaming at the kings and the people about their idolatry. The entire history of God's people can be summarized as a history of their struggle with idolatry. Well, why is this so central? Isn't idolatry just another sin? Why is David counted among the good kings? He was a murderer. And an adulterer? Is idolatry worse than murder? Well, let's take a look at Isaiah. I think this will help us understand. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this passage here is going to lay into idolatry. And so it starts with the nature of God. Who God is necessitates and morally demands our love and worship of him. Verse 9. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. 
Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. So the first part declares there is only one God, so all idols are nothing. And then it says those who make idols are nothing. They're shamed. They're degraded. They become like what they worship. That's a repeated concept in Scripture. It says in Psalms, The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. You will be like what you worship and what you love. What you worship will define you. What you love will define you. The reason that idolatry is so at the forefront is that all of these other sins flow out of it. Really, all of the sin of all of the world can be reduced to an insufficient love of God. Do we think of our sin that way? You know, so often, I I think we regard our sin as circumstantial. I, I put myself in a bad situation, shouldn't have done that. I was cruel, I was impatient, I didn't love my neighbor. But I've been under a lot of stress at work and didn't get much sleep. That's why. That's that's the issue. I drank too much. It, it wasn't great, but it, but it was a celebration, you know. It was a party. It's the circumstances. I'll, I'll try to be smarter about it next time. I'm envious. I'm covetous. But that only gets to me because they were born on third base. And I would totally be content if it weren't for the circumstances. Now, we can very easily externalize sin. But how often do we think of our sin as a failure of worship? Here's why I stumbled as a parent. Here's why I failed as a spouse. Here's why I faltered as a friend. Here's why I came up short as a neighbor. The problem was my worship. Somewhere along the line, I stopped worshiping God and I started worshiping something else. Usually myself. That's what David's psalm of repentance points us to in its primacy. The problem is fundamentally vertical. My eyes drifted from you to something else. My heart wandered from you to something else. I didn't love you well enough. I didn't worship you well enough. If we could perfectly obey the greatest commandment to love the Lord our God, then we would have no problem obeying all the other commands. John says in 1 John, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. If you're not fulfilling the second greatest commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, that's because you're not fulfilling the first greatest commandment. Jesus says that all of the law and all of the prophets hang on those two commands. And the Apostle John makes it clear, you're not fulfilling the second greatest commandment because you're not fulfilling the first. It is impossible to love your neighbor without loving God first. The degree to which we love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength is in equal measure to how much we love our neighbor. Jesus says these words, If you love me, keep my commands. Our sin and our disobedience is an insufficiency of love. You cannot walk the Christian walk unless the love and worship of Christ is central in your heart. 
And every stumble and every failure of disobedience along the way comes down in some way, shape, or form to an insufficient love of God. I sin because I love my sin more than I love God. I don't tithe because I love my money more than I love God. I don't serve because I love my time more than I love God. I don't evangelize because I love my comfort more than I love God. And we'll make excuses. I do. See, the problem with my lack of evangelism is just my temperament. The problem is my gifting. The problem is my personality. It's circumstantial. No. The problem is my worship. The problem is an insufficient love of God is producing an insufficient love of neighbor. I do not love God with everything I have. I simply do not. You know, the Great Commission flows out from the Great Commandment. You know, I grew up on the mission field, so I don't have a romanticized notion of missionaries. I know what it is to be a missionary, and I knew a lot of missionaries and saw very clearly that they were ordinary Christians. But I will say that I think it is a calling that illustrates well how the love of God motivates our love for others. What motivates a person to leave behind their family and friends, to leave behind their country and their culture, to venture to a land they don't know, to a language they don't speak, to a people they've never met. It does not start from a heart for the people. They don't know them. It starts from a heart for God. The greatest commandment leads to the Great Commission. You don't need to be a people person to be an evangelist. You need to be a God person. But wherever we fail in our walk with Christ, you will find a lack of love and worship. Our worship of the one true God is a manifestation of a heart rightly oriented and a mind rightly set. So how is your worship? I doubt very much that we're actually loving God with everything that we have. I'm sure that we're lacking in worship, that we're lacking in love. I'm sure that there are places in our lives where idols have taken preeminence. How do I change my heart? It seems impossible. And I think absent the Holy Spirit, I think it is impossible. I don't think we can change our hearts on our own, but we can change our gaze. We can change where we're looking and where we're focusing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's a statement about his nature. That's a statement about who he is. See, we need to know God if we're going to love God. So we look to know him. We read his word. Be in prayer. Be in fellowship. Engage in worship. Know who he is and what he has done. In 1 John, it says this, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We need to know God to love God. And so we delve ever deeper, recalling to mind over and over and over again who God is and what he has done. Let me close with these words from that passage in Isaiah. Remember these things, Jacob. 
For you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you. You are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. Remember these things. Return to me, and it will end in worship. If our hearts are truly devoted to our Lord and our God, then every word and deed will bring him praise and glory, and every facet of our lives will be filled with worship. Let's worship him now. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.